We're going to pick up this week in verse 12, so let's just uh, read through verses 12 and 13, and then we'll pray, and then we shall study. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we study your word tonight, that you would enable us to understand your truth, uh, see what Mark is doing here in his gospel, and see what your Spirit is saying through him. And Lord, I pray that in seeing you more clearly through your word, we become more like you. Amen. Okay, so just by way of recap, we've, we're finishing off tonight the prologue of uh, Mark's Gospel. And the prologue is really just the preparation for his ministry, which kicks off in verse 14. It started, the prologue that is, it started with uh, the declaration that this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we've been seeing how uh, the phrase Son of God is so significant and important to Mark, speaking of the might of Jesus and his strength, and referring to the, the Old Testament, when uh, the second coming, everyone will have to bow and kiss the Son, lest he be angry. And there is this, this second coming type figure that Mark focuses in on, and uh, he's going to show us the paradox of that as he goes through his Gospel. We had the quotations from the Old Testament, the focus being on Isaiah, because that is the passage that was being fulfilled in the coming of John the Baptist. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And we saw how the leading by a messenger or angel, remember the word for messenger or angel is the same word in Greek, angelos, and uh, that word is there in verse 2, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And both in Exodus 23 and in Malachi 3, we have that reference to the Exodus. In Exodus, it's past. That's what God did. He led them. Lord prepared the way. He led the way with his a messenger before him. And then in Malachi, there will be Elijah coming as the messenger before the second coming of Christ. And then in verse 3, when Isaiah, John the Baptist, is the one who is referred to, who is the voice crying in the wilderness, saying, let's prepare the way for God. And so we had John last time coming in the spirit of Elijah and also in the same clothes as Elijah. And he comes and he uh, is preaching that this is the stronger one, this is the mighty one, and Jesus is the one who doesn't simply do the religious act of baptizing, but he's going to actually bring salvation, baptize with the Holy Spirit and inaugurate the second covenant, the new covenant. Now, when we got to the second half of the, uh, the passage on John the Baptist, we saw in verse 9, uh, John comes, he baptizes Jesus, and that Jesus, when he comes out of the water, the heavens are torn open. The other Gospels speak about the heavens being opened. Mark speaks of them being torn open to create the link with the tearing of the temple curtain at the end of the Gospel. And the Spirit descends most texts say on him. The Greek literally says into him. It's on him in the other Gospels, but in this Gospel it's into him because Mark is drawing a parallel at the end of his Gospel with Jesus breathing out 
Remember, breath and spirit are the same word in Greek, so literally spiriting out at the end. So at the beginning of his ministry, it's spirit in, and at the end of his ministry, it's spirit out. The spirit is the one who empowers him for this ministry. And then again, we have the call from heaven, you are my beloved son with you, I am well pleased. Now, with the Spirit coming into him and empowering him and setting him up now for the beginning of his ministry, there's one last thing that needs to happen before he goes to do his ministry, and that is his temptation in the wilderness. Now, most of us are familiar with this story, this passage, the, uh, the 40 days in the wilderness, and the different temptations that come to Jesus through Satan in the wilderness. The interesting thing about Mark's Gospel is how short it is. Now, Mark has put it there for a reason, and he has left out all the details for a reason as well. Things aren't accidental in the way that these Gospels are structured. So, if Mark didn't want us to know about it, if it wasn't important to Mark, he could have just left it out. John leaves it out. John leaves out this. John leaves out the transfiguration. There's all sorts of things left out. Mark could leave it out, but he doesn't. And yet, he doesn't give us the details that Matthew and Luke give us. And there's a reason for that, as I will show you in a moment. So, we're going to look at this temptation as being the last step of preparation for Jesus as he goes into ministry. Thus, it's the end of the prologue. Now, he's ready for ministry insofar as he now has the Spirit. And what's interesting is it says, and the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now, if you weren't here for my introduction, the word immediately is used over 40 times in Mark's Gospel. And the word immediately to us means this something has just happened, and now this next thing is happening, and there's no gap in between. Right? So, I lift one hand, and immediately I lift the other hand. There's almost no gap in between. That kind of thing. That's not how Mark uses it. It's kind of a marker going from section to section, and it seems to create links as well. And it seems to me that what Mark's doing here with this use of immediately here, is what he's saying is, he's saying, so Jesus has just been baptized by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is now in him, it now empowers him, like the prophets of old, he's the servant of Isaiah, he's now empowered by the Spirit, my Spirit is on him, a Spirit of wisdom, he is that servant, he is that son, and now the Spirit is in him, immediately the Spirit drives him out. So the focus has been on the Spirit coming in him, and now we're immediately seeing, immediately for us, what the Spirit is going to do. So this is creating a link between the two sections. He has the Holy Spirit, and because he has the Holy Spirit, he now goes out into the wilderness. Now, the most fascinating thing I think about this is that the Spirit drives him out. Now, the other Gospels talk about him being led by the Spirit, but Mark talks about him being driven out. In fact, literally... Mark talks about him being cast out. Now, Mark and his dealings with Satan in his Gospel are very important to Mark and his Gospel. And exorcisms, the casting out of evil spirits from within people, is very important to Mark's Gospel. Mark is showing us that Jesus is the mighty Son of God. And he's going to show that by going into the realm of battling with Satan and winning. 
by casting out demons where Satan has been possessing people through demons and having control of people, as the satanic realm has had control of people, and Jesus is going to cast them out and he is going to show that he has power. What's fascinating to me is the Greek word that means to cast out, to throw out, which is the word that all the Gospels use for the casting out of demons in exorcisms. That's exactly the same word that is used here. So, in an exorcism, Jesus does the casting out and the evil spirits, the demons, are cast out, right? In this verse, Jesus is the one being cast out and the spirit is casting him out. Isn't that strange? And in fact, because the war with Satan, because exorcisms, because all of this is so central to Mark's Gospel, Mark very strategically uses the phrase cast out in other circumstances as well. When he's trying to heal a, a young girl, he the family are there and he casts them out of the room so he can go about the healing undisturbed. We'll talk about that when we come there. The key one is when Jesus goes and cleanses the temple, he casts them out from the temple. And so we have this parallel whereby Jesus is uh, casting out demons from people and these people are damaged, they're, they're broken, they're hurting, they are, they are compromised because they have an evil spirit in them. And so Jesus casts them out to free them, right? In the same way, Jesus, who is about to at his death have the, te the, temp the temple curtain torn in two, he is going to cleanse the temple first as a symbolic gesture. He's casting out the things that have made the temple unclean. He's casting out the sin that has left the, led the people away from God through their religion that has become so compromised. So Mark uses these terms really strategically. And here in uh, Mark's Gospel before us, the Spirit is the one doing the casting out, not Jesus like in the other cases. Here the Spirit is doing the casting out and Jesus is being cast out. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus is somehow bad or wrong or anything like that? No, what it's doing, I believe, is it's drawing our attention to the linkage, the connection between this passage and the exorcism passages. By using the phrase casting out, What's happening is that phrase is in our head and immediately, using Mark's word there, but right in the first chapter, on, on more than one occasion, we're going to see multiple exorcisms in chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel. And then there's more exorcisms in chapter 2. And we have this whole battle with Satan going on through exorcisms. And what's happening is the battle with Satan begins here in Mark's Gospel, in the, the, the temptation in the wilderness. Now, at this point, let me explain to you why I think Mark has such a short referencing to the temptations of Christ. You presumably are familiar with the other Gospels and you're familiar enough to at least know a little bit about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And in, in Matthew, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 4, he's there 40 days, 40 nights. He becomes hungry after 40 days and 40 nights. That sounds obvious to us, doesn't it? You'd be hungry after 40 days and nights. But actually, when you fast, you stop being hungry. 
your body learns that no food's coming and what we think of as hunger is actually just the, the wanting something inside of us which we don't have but actual hunger hunger comes when you actually run out of energy and you start to use your own muscles as, as, as calories and that's what's probably being referenced there but anyway I'm, I'm getting distracted but the point is there he is hungry and the tempter comes to him Satan and says if you're the son of God there you go that would be useful for Mark wouldn't it son of God that's his phrase if you're the, the mighty one the son of God command these stones to become loaves of bread as it is written man shall not live by bread alone but every word that comes from the mouth of God and so Satan goes on and tempts him and many of these temptations the way that they're worded and what have you would be useful for Mark and Mark would have been familiar with this but he doesn't use it why does he not use it? I'll tell you why. Because at the end of the temptations, in Matthew's Gospel, for example, verse 11, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So what happens at the end of the temptations? Satan tries once, Satan tries twice, Satan tries a third time, and he gives up and he goes. And then Jesus has is ministered to by the angels, presumably that is in the sense that he now has food and water and what have you, but he, he, he has that now, and Satan has been defeated, Jesus won in the temptations, right? But in Mark's Gospel, there's no victory. There's no incident. Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, hey, here's your response and resist the temptation. We're not told who wins. We're not told what happens. And that's important, not because of course Jesus did anything other than win in the wilderness, I'm not suggesting that. What I'm saying is, from Mark's Gospel, what he does is he's got a link to the section before and a link to the section afterwards. Just follow this carefully. So, by saying that Jesus was cast out by the Spirit, we've now got a link with the exorcisms that are to follow. And by him doing that, by him being driven out in that way, he's now there and there's no conclusion and so immediately we now come to the next section, okay? And we're going to go and he starts his ministry, he calls the first disciples and then the first miracle he does is the healing of a man with an unclean spirit. And so Jesus is there battling with Satan, but what happens? How does Jesus battle Satan? You've only got to wait another couple of paragraphs and you've got your first answer. Jesus versus Satan with a man with an unclean spirit. Who wins? Jesus. And then before the end of the chapter he heals many. These people are there and they're, they're sick and Jesus comes and he deals with their sicknesses. Again, victory for Jesus. And then there's a leper and a leper comes along. And, and I'll deal with all of this when we get there, but lepers didn't get healed. This is a very special miracle for all sorts of reasons. And Jesus heals the leper. Jesus has victory. Then there's a paralytic in the beginning of chapter 2. And who wins that one? That would be Jesus again. And then there is the man with a withered hand in chapter 3. And who, does the, who wins that? That's Jesus again. And so the reason that Mark doesn't give us the details of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is because for Mark, the testing of Christ, the battle between Christ and Satan, is the Gospel. That's the whole point. And so, that battle between them really comes to a head in chapter 3. Now, we're going to take a few months to get there, so we can, we can have a preview. So let's skip ahead to chapter 3 briefly. If you look in chapter 3, Mark has the passage that deals with the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. 
And in Matthew's Gospel it's slightly different because Matthew in this passage is trying to show the links between this and the sins at the time of the days of Jeremiah. With Mark it's slightly different. But anyway, the scribes, this is verse 22 of chapter 3, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and the prince of demon, by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So, forget the other Gospels, let's just look at what Mark's saying here, okay? The scribes, the religious leaders, have now come and the scribes are saying that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. And that's going to be very clear that he's the, the prince of all demons and essentially he is, the, that is Satan who is being referenced here. Okay? And they're saying that because Jesus is empowered by the chief demon, by Satan himself, he's able to take control of other demons and cast them out. They can't deny that exorcisms are taking place. So how's Jesus got authority over these demons? How's he doing it? Well their conclusion, because they can't conclude that Jesus is a good guy, that he's from God, they have, have to accept what he's saying. And he's just offended them with his teaching in the previous chapter. So that can't be right. So they explain it by saying that he's possessed by the prince of demons and that's how he does it. So Jesus called them to him. And he uh, said to them in parables. So he calls them in and he talks to them. This is how he responds. How can Satan cast out Satan? So they're saying Beelzebub, but he says Satan. But by the way, one of the, one of the examples, one of the reasons, the um, evidences, better word, sorry. One of the evidences that Satan is such a key character in Mark's Gospel is that in other Gospels he's referred to in different ways. The tester, the accuser, um, the... Um, you know, trying to think of another phrase, but he, he's referred to in different terminology. In Mark's Gospel, he's always referred to as Satan. He's always referred to by name. And, and so Jesus here refers to him as Satan, and he says, uh, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So in other words, if, if, the, if the kingdom is fighting within itself, if, if, there's, an in, if there's a struggle, then that kingdom's going to fall apart. So the, the, the way that they looked at the argument was, well, Satan has higher authority, so he can cast out this demon. But Jesus' point is, this isn't simply a dis, you know, cease and desist kind of order. This is a violent throwing out, an overthrowing of this. This is, this is, this is an attack on the evil spirits that are being cast out. And therefore, if Satan was fighting against, was casting them out, he'd be fighting against his own, and a divided kingdom will not stand. A house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Um, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then he may plunder his house. In other words, if you're going to basically take something from someone against their will, you've got to be stronger than that person. So if you've got an evil spirit, and here in this context, that's, that's what the, the evil spirit is. It's, it's the strong man in context. If you're the strong man, and here you are controlling this person, then if, you, if you're going to cast that evil spirit out, it's like taking something from a strong man. You've got to bind them up. And what is the implication of that? The implication is you've got to be stronger. Right? There are a few of you here, if I really put my mind to it, I might be able to tie you up against your will. 
There's some of you that I certainly wouldn't be able to. You, you've got to be stronger than someone to tie them up if they don't want to be tied up, right? So this whole conflict here, is it, with everything really from now with the temptation in the wilderness it, it is building up to chapter 3 with this, this, this situation where he is accused of working with Satan and for Satan and he argues very persuasively that that couldn't possibly be the case. And more so in saying that, he says what John the Baptist has already referenced, he implies that he's the stronger one. If he's going in and casting out demons, he's stronger than those demons. He's more powerful than the kingdom of Satan, and he is stronger than Satan. So this mini temptation in the wilderness, is we have so few details, because the battle from Mark's gospel, with the story that Mark wants to tell, the battle for us, the reader, is not what happened in the wilderness, but rather that kicks off the battle, which is what we're going to follow through right the way to the cross. And Mark is going to tell this story of this mighty Jesus who is the Son of God and is the stronger one and who casts out demons because he's stronger than the kingdom of Satan and heals people because he's stronger than the kingdom of Satan. And he binds up those demons and he binds up the strong men in a parable form. There's not literally a binding, but he is stronger than them so he can overcome them, right? And then what happens? As soon as the disciples figure out halfway through the gospel who Jesus is. You're the Son of God. You're the mighty one. You're the powerful one. Jesus said, it's great, you've got it. Now, by the way, I've got to go and die now. What? That completely goes against their whole understanding of the Son of God. He's, he's, the, he's the Messiah. He's going to come and set us free from the Romans. He's going to conquer it. He's, he's the mighty one. This is what we've been waiting for. You're going to die? That makes no sense. And what happens in Mark's Gospel when he goes to the cross? He's arrested and they bind him up. Same words as in chapter 3. The one who binds up the enemy gets bound up. By whom? Well, by implication, to some degree, the enemy. Because we're seeing the battle with Satan right the way through. The same word here that is used to say he was tempted by Satan, that's the same phrase that Jesus uses in the Garden of Gethsemane. Pray that you will not be tempted. And Jesus clearly sees this tempting, this testing, same word in the Greek, tempting, testing. This testing that goes on in Gethsemane is linked to this whole section here in chapter 1. The testing of Jesus isn't just here. The testing of Jesus is right the way through the gospel. And he wins 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 and then suddenly it looks like he's lost. But then he rises from the dead. And we see Mark just unfolding this story before us. So that's why it's so short. And the Spirit drove, uh, drove him out, cast him out into the wilderness. The other thing about the Spirit casting him out is it almost gives the implication of the Spirit being stronger than Christ. Why is that? Because in this context, practically, I want to have that caveat there, Practically, the Spirit is stronger than Christ. Why? Is there some sort of unevenness in the Trinity? No, 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 not at all. What it is, is that what Jesus is doing, he's doing in his humanity. He's come as a man. He's incarnate. 
And he has to be incarnate because his story is going to end with him going to the cross. And God can't die, but man can die. So to be able to die on the cross for our sins, he has to be man so he can die, and he has to be God so that sacrifice is perfect. He had to be the God-man for the cross to mean anything. So he has to come as a man, and has to battle Satan. From here in the wilderness, right the way to the cross, that battle is done with him as a man. And how on earth would a man battle Satan and be more powerful than Satan? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's so important for us. That's why our studies in Ephesians have been so important. Because if we are Christians, we are indwelt by that same Holy Spirit. And we, like Jesus, have our lives and our ministries as being in this battleground with Satan. Unlike Jesus, I suspect we come out with a few bruises and scrapes and broken bones here and there. But we have the same Spirit empowering us. We have that same spirit. And so Jesus uh, is driven out by that spirit who now empowers him and now leads him and leads him into the wilderness, casts him out, takes him away. And of course the casting out, when we see that parallel again with the implication of uh, the, the, the connection with exorcisms, is the spirits don't want to leave. And Jesus here, I see the implication that Jesus did not want to go out in the wilderness, not eat for 40 days. He didn't want to go out into the wilderness in that environment. He, he's now empowered by the Spirit. He wants to get on with ministry, presumably. It, it, it's sort of, this is counterintuitive. But he's sent out and he goes and he does that. And thus, his battle with Satan, now that he's empowered, his battle with, with Satan begins. Now, he's tested in the wilderness, he's tempted, and he's there for 40 days. We um, have the number 40 being used symbolically, routinely in the Bible for, for tempting and testing. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. We've got the 40 um, years of the wilderness wanderings. Elijah's fast in 1 Kings 19 was 40 days as well, and so we have all of those links. And by the way, of course, Elijah's fast would perhaps be more at the forefront of the mind of uh, Mark right now. Of course, he's already referenced Malachi chapter 3 and the, me the messenger, the forerunner. And uh, he's already told us that John the Baptist is wearing the same clothes as Elijah. The description of John the Baptist is the same description that we have of Elijah in, in 2 Kings. And, uh, and so it is that I think that link is there and thus the implication of the 40-day fast. So he's there and he's tempted by Satan and thus the battle begins. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if you look, say, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, and you look at the temptation in the wilderness, there's a lot of good details there, right? I mean, you know, if you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. If you're the Son of God, you can do that. You know, jump from this high place, and, and, and the angels will come and they'll catch you. There's, there's some good stuff in there, right? If you're going to put a little bit in, maybe some of that. But the only two things he tells us about this experience, other than how long it is, is he tells us that there were wild animals there and there were angels there. Now when you read through Matthew's uh, Gospel, that seems to me to be two of the least important of details. And yet Mark tells us those two things. So that tells me something. It tells me 
that these two things are significant for Matthew's theme. So let's have a look at them. Firstly, he says he was with wild animals. Well, wild beasts are never a good thing, really. They're, they're always there when there's negative things going on. Uh, Isaiah mentions them a few times with regards to uh, the destruction of Babylon, for example. There's going to then be wild animals roaming around that city. It's deserted, it's been destroyed, and thus it's now a place for wild animals. It's, it's like a wilderness. And so it's, it's a predominantly a negative thing. I don't think we think of Jesus as going into the wilderness and stroking the lions or anything like that. This is a, this is a negative thing, it's a threatening thing. But I think there's more to it than that. And my, my best explanation for that is if we turn briefly, it's not an illusion I don't think, but well, it may be, but let's turn to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. Now Ezekiel 34, just while you're turning there, is, the, is very strongly alluded to in John's Gospel. It's the key passage that is the background for John chapter 10, with Jesus talking about himself being the Good Shepherd. And this is the, 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 one of the key shepherding passages that uh, underlies all of these kind of shepherding analogies, but specifically John chapter 10, because it comes in context with the conflict with the Pharisees. Anywho, let's read a bit of Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Okay, so here's the first thing that we have to note, okay, is that the prophecy is specifically for a reason. It's to people and it's against those people. And it is the shepherds or the leaders, the rulers of Israel. Religious rulers, religious leaders. Okay, now... We have in chapter 3, when we saw the conflict with Satan, we turned there briefly, then you see the scribes turning up, and it's the scribes who say, hey, Jesus, we know what's going on here. Jesus is possessed by the prince of demons. That's how he's doing this. So, it's those religious leaders that are being referenced. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, in other words, yep, they're the leaders, they're in charge, and I did mean it, even to those guys, you've got to do this, you've got to say it to them. Thus says the Lord God, our shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Okay. Key passage underlies so much of the Gospels. You already see the background here to the lost sheep. That's here, you'd have seen that as well. You didn't go for them when they, when they scattered. But... But here, this is very interesting to me. He's condemning the shepherds, the false shepherds, the bad leaders, in Ezekiel's day. Okay? And clearly, the current leadership fall into not only the same category, but an even worse category. So the accusations against them is, if you're the shepherds, you should be feeding sheep. That's kind of a no-brainer, right? Shepherds feed sheep. That's what they're there for. They look after the sheep, right? But what they've been doing 
is that they have been feeding themselves. In other words, they had a responsibility to look after the sheep, but they have used the sheep to look after themselves. Specifically, they eat the fat, they clothe themselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Okay? So in other words, you are gleaning from the herd the best for yourself and not worried about the rest. Then he says, the weak you have not strengthened. That was their ministry. They were supposed to nourish spiritually the people under them. The sick you have not healed. Well, who's about to come and heal all the sick? That's going to be Jesus, the good shepherd. The injured you have not bound up. Interesting use of bound again. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and with harshness you have ruled them. So there's all of this criticism against the leaders and so the sheep are scattered because they have no shepherd. They go off and the, the idea is that they're scattered around. Okay? Now, let's follow this analogy because this is important. When sheep are scattered, the idea is they're now off in the wilderness trying to find their own food. They haven't got the shepherd looking after them and protecting them. And that makes them vulnerable to wild beasts. Right? Now, we know that the wild beasts... Certainly in this picture, John 10 may be slightly different, but in the way that Mark uses, or, or the way Ezekiel uses this, and, and I think Mark is probably referencing this, but the, the shepherds are the bad leaders, right? Because the shepherds don't look after the sheep, the sheep just go off, and then they can be picked off by the wild beasts. Who are the wild beasts? Well, that presumably to me is going to be the work of the enemy. The shepherds are supposed to protect the flock from the enemy. Same today. When I teach you the Bible, the idea is that you are more enamored with Christ, you know your Bible better, you understand the things of God better, that you have a closer relationship with God, and then when Satan sends his messengers, his angels to do his work, that we can resist that temptation. That's the idea. We protect, this is a protection from the shepherds. And I think that the wild beasts, by implication, are Satan's demons. They are the demonic realm. And I think that when we see this in Mark, we see this picture being painted of a spiritual battle. The wilderness is the place where the realm of Satan is. And what Jesus is doing is he's going to him, to his realm, and he's now going to defeat him as much as Satan has come into the world as much as Satan has power over the world. He's going to come. And so he goes to, and in the other gospel accounts, of course, when you, well, apart from John, when you have this temptation in the wilderness, you have Satan showing his authority over the world. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all this stuff. He has some degree of authority in the world. So what Jesus is doing, is he's going to Satan's place, the wilderness, the place with the wild beasts. He's going to that place and the battle is coming back to where Satan is now having control, where he has a realm in the world. He's taking the fight to him. And so, in Mark's Gospel, when you put all these pieces together, we have got a very definitive battle that is beginning. It's, it's kind of like those, you know, like a superhero movie or something. Jesus now has the power. 
He is now not, he never was just a man, he was always the God-man. But he is now not just operating in the realm of his humanity, he's operating in the realm of empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And he is going to take the battle to the enemy, which is Satan, and the wild beasts are there in the midst. And so it is this, those wild beasts, and I think the implication is, as we now come and see the ministry of Satan in the Gospels, and how he's been harming people and hurting people, we see Jesus overcoming that, and so Jesus is showing that he is the shepherd, because he is now starting to protect people, and, and fetch people, where they've been snatched by wild beasts. This is a spiritual battle that's being painted. The second thing that is being uh, referenced here uh, in this account is that uh, the angels were ministering to him. Now we saw that at the end of Matthew's account that the angels would, were turned up at the end and that's interesting to me in that there is this summary here in Mark's Gospel of the wild beasts and the angels. But when we look at the specifics in the other Gospel accounts, not that we're studying the other Gospels right now, but just, just as an aside, when we look at the specifics of the other Gospel accounts, we see that it is after Jesus has defeated Satan that the angels turn up. Now, why does he mention the angels here specifically? Why mention that here? Because for, for Mark, it's not that the angels simply minister to Jesus after he's won the battle, which they did, and we know that from the other Gospel accounts. Mark mentions the angels being there, which we know they were, because what he's doing is he's creating this scenario of this battleground. On the one hand, you have the wild beasts, and on the other hand, you have the angels. And we're going to go out now into the world from the wilderness, go out into ministry. And as he goes out into ministry, we have this spiritual battle that is going on. We have the demonic realm and the angelic realm. We have the spiritual realm where the battle is waging. And what we're seeing when Jesus is doing things, healing the sick, when he's casting out demons, when he is having victory over Satan, we're seeing this battle that's being set up here being, being shown to us in the Gospel accounts. Now, by way of application, I want to say something quite profound at this point. If this is the setting up of a spiritual battle, what's happening is that Mark is, in a sense, pulling back the curtain a bit and showing us the, the angelic and demonic realm. And what's happening is that Jesus is conquering the demonic realm. He's showing his authority over the demonic realm because he is empowered. Specifically, this text shows us because he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are empowered by the same Holy Spirit. We have power over Satan. Now, I don't think that means that we expect every other day to be healing people and casting out demons. And there's reasons for that, and we'll come to them as we deal with these Gospel accounts. But what we have learned in our studies in Ephesians is this, is that the same Holy Spirit is given to all of us, which creates unity, because we have the same Spirit, and creates diversity, because the same Spirit gives different gifts. When we operate in the gifts that God gives us, we defeat Satan. You don't, some wings of the church seem to have this idea that, you know, 
they've taken this stuff and they've come to some wacky conclusions and they think that you, you shout out, I bind you Satan and things like that. It, it, it's just nonsense. They're taking back passages out of context and misapplying them. I know people who will pray and they will stomp Satan. Treading on him. I, I stomp on you, Satan. I bind you, Satan. Like Satan somehow listening to me. Do you, do you know what? You can bind Satan and you can stomp him if you want to use that word and defeat him. You don't do it by saying silly prayers like that. You do it by using the gifts that God has given you. You just live your life doing what God has given you to do. Now, we're going to come to spiritual warfare specifically in uh, Ephesians next time. So we'll be looking at that quite conveniently next week and we'll be able to tie these passages together. But I want us to understand that we have a picture being painted by Mark of Jesus empowered by the Spirit. As he goes out in ministry, Satan is defeated. Not by Jesus thinking, oh, I'll do this, I'll do that, but by him being led by God, by him being empowered by the Spirit. And that, in, in, in its broadest sense, is, is something that awaits us every morning. It doesn't matter what we are, it doesn't matter if you never step foot out of your house. That we are empowered by the Spirit, even on our worst of days. Even at our weakest. Even at our most broken. And God can use us. And so it is. You know, I was just thinking about this this morning. Just Everybody's got different ways of, you know, reading the Bible. You know, some people will read set number of, a set passage every morning in the Bible. Some will read a couple of verses and maybe have a little, one of those little study guides, a little commentary on it. Some people will, will, will pray a prayer list and stuff like that. And everyone's got different ways of doing it. But however you meet with God... However you do your devotions, for want of a, 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 another phrase, I think there needs to be this sense in which we come before God every day and we just say, I need you. Just use me. Because it's easy to read multiple chapters and for it just to be a religious act and we're just reading and we're just learning. Or, or in my case, you know, because I love studying this, studying this kind of stuff, it, it could be an intellectual thing. And, and there has to be this sense in which our heart says to God, God, here I am, I'm yours. Use me. Because God can do amazing things through each one of us. I, I really want us to understand that. The, the connection here between the defeating of Satan coming up afterwards and the empowering of the Holy Spirit having happened just preceding, that that connection is something that is, that is, is true for us as well. And I really want us to understand that. Now, the other thing with regards to the angels is that this is another inclusio, another sandwich for this gospel account, this gospel prologue, where he says, Behold, I send my messenger, verse 2. Messenger and angel are the same word. I send my angelos before your face, and at the end, the angels were ministering to him. Okay? Now that's significant for several reasons. It, it draws those two passages together. It connects the whole section, okay? But here's what it shows us. The messenger goes before his face. So the messenger goes before him. He leads the way. John the Baptist is the messenger. And now we have here other messengers, other angels, ministering to him in the wilderness. 
So that first, so that the prologue begins with these quotations that tell us about angels or messengers going before him, a way, way being prepared in the wilderness for this servant of God. And where does the prologue end? It ends in the wilderness with the messengers, with Jesus being ministered to by them. He is the Son of God. He is the servant of God. He is the one that Isaiah prophesied. He is the Messiah. And now, next time, next week, verse 14, he is going to go out in the power of the Spirit and do what it is that he does. He's going to start his ministry and we're going to see the many things that he does. So that reference to angels links the whole kind of section together and it points to Jesus as being that one prophesied, that one who's coming. He is the one, and I believe that not only is he the one in Malachi, whom Elijah was the forerunner for, I don't simply believe that he is clearly here, the Son of God, with, in the Gospel accounts that John went as the one before, the messenger, the forerunner who went before him. But even in that other reference that we had in Exodus, when the angels went before the Israelites, there was, leading them there, was the presence of God. I believe that Jesus himself is the one who in his pre-incarnate form led them out of the wilderness. Or led them, sorry, out from Egypt into the wilderness. Jesus is this central character in the Old Testament. He's the one they've been waiting for. And as of next time, we will see what it is that Jesus is going to do, how he's going to battle Satan, and how he will win that battle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, this passage before us today, Lord. And Lord, I, I'm fascinated just to how Mark structures his gospel and puts all this stuff to link everything together. But when we see those links, Lord, we see how it is that Jesus, empowered by your spirit was able to do your will and to overcome the enemy. Father, we understand that we live in a world where there is unseen. There's an unseen spiritual realm of demons and wild beasts as they are and angels. And Lord, you've given us all the tools that we need to win the battle. To have victory. And so I pray, Lord, that we who have your spirit would learn to wield that weapon. We would be people of your word, that we would be people of prayer, and that we would be people who are utterly, utterly reliant upon you. We ask this for your glory. Amen.